Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, The Battle of Lepanto, Part 3 of 5. Last week, in Part 2, I recounted the story of the Mediterranean in the mid-16th century up until the abdication of Emperor Charles V in the year 1556. As the 1560s arrived, the face of Western Europe was changing fast. On the 21st of September, 1558, Charles V died in a monastery in Spain, and just eight weeks later, Queen Mary of England followed him to the grave, to be succeeded by her half-sister Elizabeth. In 1559, the Treaty of Cateau-Cambrésis was concluded between the French king, Henry II, and Charles's successor, King Philip II of Spain, ending a decades-long war between France and Habsburgs. During the celebrations of the peace, Henry II was mortally wounded in the jousting tournament. His heir, Francis II, husband of Mary, Queen of Scots, died in his turn the year after. Due to their untimely deaths and religious divisions in their kingdom, France was too preoccupied with its own internal problems for the rest of the century to participate much in international affairs. The year 1561 also saw the death of one of Sultan Suleiman's two surviving sons, Bayazid, leaving the path clear for the succession of his brother, Selim. The veteran Ottoman leader was by now well into his sixties, and although without the vigour of his youth, was still as formidable a foe to his enemies as he had ever been. The two superpowers of the time were Habsburg Spain and the Ottoman Sultanate. The situation is described by Barnaby Rogerson in his book The Last Crusaders, East, West and the Battle for the Centre of the World was that both powers were already overbloated and condemned by fate to bloody warfare. Quote, both states were already beyond the power of any one man to rule and would soon be rocked by inflation, revolt and internal dissension. But the power structure within both regimes would not allow the momentum of a century of violent expansionism to be halted. Fleets of galleys that were worthy of Rome would be constructed for a great trial. Treasure beyond calculation consumed in the pursuit of victory, and hundreds of thousands of lives thrown into an all-consuming war machine. At first, the new king of Spain, Philip II, principally due to the strain on his resources of ruling not only Spain but also the Low Countries and large parts of Italy, was inclined to seek a truce with Suleiman. In late 1558, Ferdinand I, Philip's uncle and Holy Roman Emperor, sent envoys to arrange a truce with the Turks, and Philip used this initiative as a front to conceal his own negotiations. The Sultan refused, declaring he would deal only with Ferdinand. If Philip wanted an armistice, he would have to beg for one publicly. 
having been rebuffed and shortly after having achieved peace on favourable terms with France at Cata Cambresi, Philip felt confident enough to take a firmer line and instead take the fight to the Turks. He ordered all his forces in the Mediterranean to gather in Sicily for a surprise invasion of the port of Tripoli. These included Genoese, Spanish, Venetians, Sicilians and Knights of St John. Geoffrey Parker, in his biography of Philip, Impudent King, A New Life of Philip II, writes that this decision was a catastrophic miscalculation, born of overconfidence. By the time such a force was ready, it was December, and predictably winter storms drove it back, destroying any chance of surprise. Regardless, Philip stayed firm, and the force set out once more in February 1560, landing near Tripoli. The admiral in charge lost his nerve when another storm struck up. He retreated to the island of Gerba, halfway between Tunis and Tripoli, which he declared as annexed as a new territory for King Philip. The army was kept in good order, local villages were not pillaged, and heavy fortifications were quickly constructed. However, when an Ottoman navy arrived to reclaim the island, Philip's ships were woefully unprepared, and the different nationalities lacked any coordination or common objective. With little struggle, 28 ships of the Christian fleet of 48 were sunk or captured. Several thousand Spanish soldiers escaped the destruction of the fleet and continued to resist from within the walls of the half-built fortress. They bravely held out against the siege for two months, but with the failure of Philip to provide a relief army and their access to water cut off, they had no choice but for one last desperate sortie. For two days they fought to last, but were overcome by superior Ottoman forces. Outside the fort, the corsair captain, Dragu, ordered a pyramid to be built with the skulls of the Christians, who perished. This monument, reinforced with lime mortar, stood for 300 years before a priest finally managed to persuade the islanders to dismantle it and to lay the bones to rest. While most of Spain's allies had their fleets devastated by the fiasco at Gerba, just as serious for Philip was his considerable losses in skilled naval personnel, making impossible the launching of any new naval operations for years to come. It only seemed a matter of time before the Ottomans reappeared and attempted the conquest of further Christian territories in the Mediterranean. Yet the years 1561 and 1562 passed by without a major Ottoman offensive. This has been explained by internal problems within the empire, especially when the question of who would succeed the ageing Suleiman. In addition, the Turks could no longer expect logistical support from the French, and also during this period the Ottoman treasury was struggling to fund yet another costly war. A debased gold coinage struck in 1560 saw its real value fall by 30%. Philip II took the opportunity to rebuild his lost fleets. To help finance this, he requested grants from Spain and the papacy. In the years 1563 and 1564, huge amounts of money flowed into Barcelona, Genoa and Messina for the construction of a new navy. In July 1564, passed away Philip's uncle, Ferdinand, leaving potential opportunities for the Ottomans to exploit Christian weaknesses in Central Europe but for the time being, the focus of conflict in Europe remained in the Mediterranean. Until the fleets were prepared, the pirates were able to take full advantage. 
1563, the Corsairs of Algeria set siege to the Spanish outpost of Oran in northwest Algeria. The same year, a band of Barbary pirates were bold enough to seize a Spanish merchant ship just three miles off Valencia, and nothing could be done about it. And in summer 1564, it became clear that the Ottoman Empire was once more readying itself for a major confrontation. Not only were war galleys being refurbished, but also storeships suitable for transporting large numbers of men and artillery. Since the Ottoman peace with Venice was still holding, the focus of Turkish aggression was clearly going to lie further west. In fact, the destination planned by the Sultan was the island of Malta, a Christian stronghold held by the Knights of St John, leading to one of the most epic sieges in the history of the Mediterranean. Sultan Suleiman had plenty of time to regret his decision in 1522 to allow the Knights of St John to depart unharmed after the fall of their former stronghold of Rhodes. Now settled in their new home at Malta, they were once more a persistent nuisance. At first sight, Malta was not the most obviously desirable location to set up home. It was dry and barren, with a characteristic type of soft sandstone called tufa. Except for a few springs in the centre of the island, there was no running water, so the inhabitants must capture rainwater in cisterns. It was most unsuited for growing cereals, which had to be imported, but its climate did support the growing of figs, melons and other fruits. A major motivation for the Ottomans invading Malta was that it occupied a key position in the central Mediterranean, in between Turkish-held Tripoli and Spanish-held Sicily. Once in their hands, it would provide a great springboard for an invasion of Sicily, or even of mainland Italy. An advantage of the barren landscape of Malta from a defender's point of view was that the Ottoman invasion force had from the beginning to be largely self-supporting. Their fleet consisted of an army of 40,000 men with their horses, cannon and military supplies, but also enough food, water and fuel for cooking to support them all. The navy consisted of 200 ships, including 130 oared galleys and 30 galleasses. The man in charge of the defence of Malta was the Grand Master of the Order of St John, named John de la Vallette. He was said to have been very handsome, to have been multilingual and a hard, uncompromising defender of the Christian faith. At the start of the siege, he could count on only some 540 knights with their seven at arms, together with about a thousand Spanish infantrymen and arquebusiers, and perhaps 4,000 local Maltese militia. Lavalette had prepared as well as he could, bringing in emergency supplies of grain, additional armaments, and all water cisterns were filled up. The illegitimate son of Charles V. Don John, or Juan of Austria, pleaded with his older half-brother, King Philip, to be permitted to join the battle. He was forbidden from doing so, but it would not take many more years for Juan to make his mark on the major battlefield. The Turkish fleet arrived on the 18th of May, 1565. Suleiman, at nearly 70 years of age, regretted being too old to lead the expedition in person, so divided the command into two, between the naval force and the land army. The defences were concentrated around the old town of Birgu, which looked over the natural basin of Malta's Grand Harbour, near where the island's capital today, Valletta, is located. 
Since the harbour was far too large to be enclosed in a single defensive system, three separate fortresses had been added to the peninsula nearest to the old town. It was one of these fortresses, that of St Elmo, which became the main focus of the Ottoman attack. At first sight, the traditional star-shaped fort of St Elmo may have looked like a reasonably easy target to capture. The main difficulty was dragging the heavy cannon to get within range. This slowed down the Turks, providing a welcome opportunity for the defenders to further strengthen their defences. The veteran Ottoman commander, Dragu, now 80 years old, personally took charge of the attack. Yet despite the remorseless bombardment from three sides, the defenders bravely held out. Every night, under cover of darkness, small boats from another Maltese fortress slipped across the harbour mouth to bring the garrison fresh troops and provisions, and it was only thanks to them that the fort held out for as long as it did. After 31 days, the Turks finally smashed through the walls of St Elmo on the 23rd of June. Only about 60 of the defenders were still alive. Except for nine who managed to swim to safety across the harbour, all the others were immediately decapitated and their bodies nailed to wooden crosses in mock crucifixions. In response, when he saw this, Lavalette ordered the execution of all his Turkish prisoners. There was no mistaking that from now on no quarter would be given from either side. The Turks had achieved their first objective, but at great loss. Some 8,000 of their finest troops had perished. And literally on the same day as the fall of St Elmo, the Ottoman commander, Dragu, died from injuries sustained from gunfire. The loss of the experienced officer would prove to be a great setback. The next target of attack was the fortress of St Angelo, which also proved a tough nut to crack. On the 7th of August, the Turks made a major assault, with the native cavalry of Malta pushed back the attackers. By now, the long, hard siege was taking its toll on both sides. Disease, food and water shortages, on top of the intense fighting, led to appalling casualties. The Knights of Malta could probably not have held out for much longer, but on the 7th of September came deliverance, a relief navy sent by the Spanish Viceroy in Sicily. The exhausted Ottoman forces quickly lifted the siege and returned home. They left the town of Bergu devastated, so when rebuilding began, Lavalette chose not to build the ruins, but ordered the construction of a new town, which, richly deserved, came to be named after him, Valletta, the modern-day capital of Malta. Sultan Suleiman's first reaction, furious as he must have been at the defeat, was to swear personally to lead a new expedition to Malta. But he changed his mind and instead personally led another land-based campaign against Hungary and Austria, angry at the refusal of the new Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian II, who had succeeded his father Ferdinand as ruler of Austria, to pay tribute to the Turks. The campaign was dominated by the Ottoman siege of the southern Hungarian fortress of Sigetvar, defended by Count Zvinsky, just as stubbornly and heroically as the Knights of Malta. Suleiman did not live to see the fortress finally fall after holding out for more than a month. The Grand Vizier, Sokolu Mehmet, fully aware of the low regard in which the Ottoman army held his designated son and successor Selim, kept the Sultan's death a secret as long as he was able. It was vital that no gap in authority be exploited by a rebellion. 
Only after Selim arrived in Constantinople and was formally proclaimed Sultan Selim II on the 29th of October was Suleiman's passing away revealed. Nevertheless, the Janissaries openly revolted and only quietened on payment of large amounts of cash. It was not an auspicious start for the new Sultan. Sultan Suleiman was regarded by contemporaries as just as magnificent at the end of his reign as at the beginning, although in different ways. Less a great warrior prince and more an elder statesman. To quote Caroline Finkel in her book, Osman's Dream, the Story of the Ottoman Empire, 1300 to 1923, quote, his personal display was now muted to a pious sobriety, befitting a sultan who aspired to be the embodiment of justice. His magnificence had become more personal, advertised in building works and moral acts, end quote. Still in the West, Suleiman is best known for his military conquests, but he was a great leader in other ways. To his Ottoman subjects, his nickname, instead of the Magnificent, was the Lawgiver, for the reams of legislation which he helped put through. He collected all the judgments that had been issued by the nine Ottoman sultans who preceded him, covering areas such as criminal law, land tenure and taxation. After eliminating duplications and choosing between contradictory statements, he issued a single legal code, all the while being careful not to violate the basic laws of Islam. Furthermore, Suleiman enacted new criminal and police legislation, prescribing a set of fines for specific offences, as well as reducing the instances requiring death or mutilation. Suleiman was an active patron of the arts, especially painting and architecture. His most famous architect was Mimar Sinan. In his long life, from about 1490 to 1588, Sinan was responsible for the construction of more than 300 major structures, as well as many other more modest projects, such as schools. He is most famous for his work on mosques, including the Suleymaniye Mosque, the second largest mosque today in Istanbul, built on the orders of, and named after, Suleiman the Magnificent. One criticism levelled against Suleiman was that he should not have set his eyes so firmly on Europe and could have achieved far more militarily with the resources he had to hand if he had worked more on opportunities elsewhere. He let the orders of Muscovy make important strategic gains the other side of the Black Sea. His failure to break through Portuguese dominance of the Indian Ocean meant that the Ottoman Empire never gained from the new world discoveries in the same way as did the nations in Western Europe and he could arguably have made greater gains against Persia. Perhaps his greatest personal individual mistakes were executing his close companion and loyal adviser Ibrahim Pasha, and also his most able son Mustafa. He was the tenth and greatest of all Ottoman sultans, but when he took his last breath, the Ottoman Empire began a slow decline that was to last for three and a half centuries. My name is Carl Rylant and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. You can keep in touch by following the Facebook site, just look for History of Europe Key Battles, or Twitter at History Europe KB, or the blog www.historyeurope.net. Thank you very much for listening, 
and speak to you again next week for part four. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.